This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Professor Ana Luisa Arujo, who is an American social and cultural historian and art historian who writes transnational and comparative history. Currently, she is a full professor of history at the historically Black Howard University in Washington, D.C., She was trained in Brazil, Canada, and France with a PhD in history and social and historical anthropology. She has a PhD in art history as well. As of, she has lectured in the United States, Canada, Brazil, Argentina, France, England, Portugal, Germany, the Netherlands, and South Africa. She is also the, she is also written, co-edited over 15 books. Today, we are discussing her book known as The Museums and Anti-Slavery. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Arujo. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Well, um, this book is a book that um, is a very short book than uh, a book that is uh, about uh, 100 and something pages is part of a collection at Rutledge that is a, a collection titled um, Museum in Focus. And this is a collection that uh, is intended to publish uh, short interventions, uh, then books that will intervene in a particular, uh, then uh, in a particular, on a particular topic related to, to museums. And I've been doing uh, a lot of research about the, of course, uh, history of the slavery in the Atlantic slave trade, that is my, uh, my specialty. And uh, in the different works that I published up to this day, I uh, indeed always include museums as part of this uh, landscape of memory, uh, either in particular cities that I look at or uh, particular countries. But I never dedicated... Um, uh, then the one entire book to museums. 
Then when I finished my book, uh, I was finishing my book, In Slavery in the Age of Memory, that is a book that has different chapters and has one chapter uh, that is uh, museums and uh, about the, then slavery and public history. And I look at museums. Um, I, I started thinking that it would be interesting to have a short book that would only focus on uh, the, the the problem of the slavery in the museum. And uh, of course, that, that I would be using the idea of doing this book was not to conduct uh, new research in new museums, but to look at the different museums that I have worked about uh, in, uh, in the past. Then these were museums then uh, in England, in Brazil, uh, here in the United States and uh, in France. Of course, uh, in the past, in past works, for example, I look at, at museums, uh, uh, for example, in the Republic of Benin in West Africa, uh, then uh, this, Africa is absent uh, from, this, uh, from this work. And of course, there are other museums that, uh, and museum exhibitions as well that are important in other works, but uh, that are not included uh, in this book, because of the scope that is indeed a book with short chap uh, four uh, short chapters, and uh, I then each chapter is about a particular uh, topic. Then, and these topics, then uh, even if I am looking at particular museums, I have the impression that they repeat themselves in other places that are not examined in this uh, in this particular book. Then uh, this is a little bit about what I did, um, and we can talk a little bit more. How did you, in your book, um, mm -hmm. you have a specific definition of museum because they are so varied. Can you speak with us a little bit about what that is? Yes. Then the 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 the, the definition of museum is very hard these days to 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 have this definition because. Uh, especially as a historian, we know that museums they were created at a certain uh, then at a certain moment, or then there were uh, then since antiquity places where people were collecting things and where they were displaying objects and artworks. Uh, but the the modern museum that you are talking about are museums that emerged in the the 18th century, and of course that uh, and then. 18th century, then exactly during the period uh, when uh, we had the summit of the Atlantic slave trade, and these museums emerged first uh, in Europe. Uh, then, uh, then we can take here the examples of uh, the museum, uh, the Louvre Museum in Paris, or the British Museum uh, in London. But uh, we have then we, we had other museums that emerged over time. And uh, of course, that these are uh, to some extent uh, the 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 colonial museum. But over the 20th century, this definition of museum as a place where we display objects, uh, then for visitors to 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 see them, then places that hold collections, uh, then the, the this definition uh, expanded uh, much uh, much more. But um, we have also some authors, of course, that uh, do not make uh, any particular difference between what is a museum and what is uh, a heritage site. Uh, 
in the case of this book, uh, the way I define a museum uh, is uh, related then to the to to institutions that are uh, then ran managed by communities, by private organizations, by the state as well, and institutions that promote then. Uh, the collection, the conservation, uh, research, and interpretation uh, of uh, particular then uh, dimensions of the the history, the art, and the culture of uh, societies that are associated uh, with them. Um, then, uh, of course, that to this extent, of course, that the museums that I look here in this book, they have collections, they have objects, but they are beyond uh, only. Uh, these places that have uh, these uh, these collections, they are also places where uh, we can consider as cultural and um, then educational hubs in many ways because they have also this mission of educating uh, the the public. But the museums that I look here, they have collections and they are managed by different entities that can be communities, that can be the state, that can be private organizations, but they also have this goal of educating the public. What museums did you select for this study? Well, um, then let's just hope that I do not forget any of the museums then uh, in um here in the United States, I look, I look at uh, one museum that is a private museum uh, that is uh, a house museum, that is the John Brown House Museum uh, in Providence, uh, Rhode Island. Uh, I also look at a specific exhibition uh, that is the equivalent of a museum in itself, uh, that is the Slavery and Freedom Exhibition in the National Museum of African-American History and Culture here in Washington, D.C. I also look at uh, one exhibition that uh, gave birth to part of the exhibition Slavery and Freedom. It is uh, called uh, Slavery at Jefferson's Monticello, Paradox of Liberty. And this exhibition was uh, first uh, then uh, displayed at the National Museum of African American History here in Washington, D.C. as well. Uh, also, um, I look at the exhibition Lives Bound Together, then the slavery at George Washington's Mount Vernon. And this is in Mount Vernon's uh, Donald uh, W. Reynolds Museum and Education Center. Then they have this space that is called the museum. And this is another element of the definition because to be considered here as a museum, these places, they have to self-identify as a museum. Also then in England, I look in Bristol at the Georgian House Museum that to some extent has a sort of connection. It's a, a museum that is similar uh, to the John Brown uh, House Museum in Rhode Island. I also look at the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, uh, also the Museum of London uh, Docklands. And there is there a particular exhibition that is London Sugar and Slavery that I examine in the book. Then in France, I look at two museums. There is a Museum of Aquitaine in Bordeaux. Uh, and also the Nantes History Museum in Nantes, uh, then this Bordeaux and Nantes were two uh, very 
uh, important uh, slave trading ports uh, in France. Um, in addition to that, I look at other museums in Brazil in particular, and all these museums are, then one of them is um, a museum ran by, by the, the city of Sao Paulo in Brazil, that is uh, the Museum Afro-Brasil. This was a museum created by uh, an artist and intellectual. Uh, his name is Emmanuel Araújo, who we share uh, the last name. And he is a very important Afro-Brazilian intellectual. And now this museum is named after him. Then he deceased. Uh, then uh, while this book was being uh, published, and now the museum is the the museum carries his name as well because he was the founder of that museum. In addition, I look at a small museum in Salvador in Bahia that is the Street Museum, the Museu da Cidade. Also, the Slave Museum in Belo Vale in uh, Minas Gerais, a small city uh, in Minas Gerais, is a mining region during the period of slavery. In, then this is where the museum is located. I also look. Uh, at two other uh, examples, one is uh, the Black Museum, that is a museum brand by the community, by the Black community in Rio de Janeiro, and it was a museum created uh, then in the 1930s uh, by the Black Catholic Brotherhood. Then it's a different kind of museum that is not ran by the government, it's ran by uh, then the Black community associated with the Catholic Church. And uh, in addition to that, I look um, then to the Rio Art Museum uh, to a specific uh, at a specific exhibition uh, that uh, was a few years ago in place in uh, that museum. Then this is uh, about uh, more than ten museums, uh, I, I believe, and some of them they come back in different uh, chapters of the book. Now, there's something interesting that you mentioned as you were going, as you were looking at the museums, you noted that representations of Atlantic slavery have changed over the past three decades. Can you talk about how that's been shaped um, and transformed in the museum exhibitions and why and how that happened? Yes, then if you look at in terms of three decades, it pushes us to the 1990s. Uh, the 1990s is a period that I examine in more uh, in more detail in a book that I published in 2014, that is Shadows of the Slave Past. And in that book, I look more in terms of uh, why and how the 1990s is a crucial moment for this change. Uh, and... Uh, one of the important elements is uh, really that this is the end of the Cold War, a moment when uh, the barriers that separated then North and South and East and uh, West were uh, dismantled. And there are much more dialogue that emerges after the end of the Cold War among Black communities than uh, across uh, the African diaspora. And uh, in addition to that, of course, with the rise of the internet, the rise of the cable TV, all these connections became much more, uh, much more developed. Then it, it is at that moment when you are going to see uh, uh, slavery uh, and the Atlantic slave trade becoming more visible in the public space. 
why that happens is because communities, black communities across the African diaspora, at that point, they are able to voice uh, the fact in then uh, more loudly and uh, more in, in a way that is much more interconnected, uh, the fact that anti-black racism uh, continue uh, to be uh, then the uh, present across all these these communities, and when this starts happening, one of the 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 points being made is that uh, this history, the history of the atrocities that were committed during the era of the slavery and the Atlantic slave trade, they remain um, concealed in the public space. Then uh, communities. They preserve these histories. They preserve these histories uh, in their families. They preserve this history also then um, through uh, their uh, local museums, for example. But uh, this history was not visible in the institutions uh, like museums where uh, and like even if you take the example of the monuments that only represented then uh, specifically uh, white men, uh, European men, uh, European uh, historical actors, then it's part of this shift that exists on the one hand in terms of uh, social movements during the 1990s with the end of the Cold War, um, and on the other hand also this impacts the work of historians who started to pay much more attention to these historical actors that in the past have been neglected. Then I'm talking here about the minorities in general, uh, women, the people who are uh, the working class, uh, people who are poor, uh, considered poor, uh, and of course, uh, black, uh, black social actors uh, as well. Then the change in terms of the museums over the past 30 years is about the invisibility of the slavery. And the invisibility of enslaved people and black people, uh, people of African descent, to visibility. This is what happens over uh, the, the past 30 years. And uh, in the works that I did, then when I published a book in 2010, that was the first book that I published in English, uh, at that point, I, uh, I would decry the invisibility of uh, slavery and this history of slavery, the slavery past, uh, either in public monuments or in museums. Um, but then in 2023, this landscape changed a lot than uh, we have, even if there is much more to be done. If you take uh, a place like Washington, D.C., for example, in terms of uh, museums and heritage sites, since 2008, when uh, Barack Obama became the president, then uh, since 2008, this visibility uh, increased a lot in these different sites. And museums is, uh, are one of uh, these spaces where and this visibility uh, increased. I agree. And as I was thinking about that comment and you went back to the 30 years and that I had to do a little bit of math as you were talking, thinking about it. And what came to my mind when you said 1990s was the film Amistad, which kind of brought back a lot more and brought it 
also into the public perception of what Atlantic slave trade and what that was like and how, you know, big that movie became in that moment. It came into just like outside of academic circles, it went to the general public. Um, for what it was. And I thought about those moments and where, you know, how that trajectory started shifting things um, for people just being able to see more of the connections. Because I know in classes that I both served as a TA and taught myself that I've used clips of that movie um, to show the actual slave ship experience because it's actually fairly accurate, per se, as you see some of those scenes, especially aboard the ship. Um, and, you know, for students, having that visual experience is a good experience. So that I just connected that as you were talking about the shift and how the landscape was transforming. And that was 1997, I believe, when that movie came out, Amistad. Yes, uh, it, it is true. And then it's something that we can uh, that that you can trace back uh, to those years, for example, uh, of course, that I would say that the iconic, uh, it's not a movie, but a television series based on a novel that is uh, Roots uh, by Alex yes, Hamm. Uh, and that uh, then is, of course, more when I was uh, still a child. But uh, that that story uh, about Punta Quinte and uh, the idea of uh, resisting by reaffirming uh, his name, uh, then, uh, even some scenes of that movie were, uh, I would say, borrowed in other uh, television series and other movies. That movie was important. And it was important, of course, that movie, that television series was important here in the U.S. But we watched that in Brazil. And uh, when I did research in West Africa, people uh, would refer to the experience of their ancestors there in West Africa and would refer to the story of Kunta uh, Quinte. Then this was in the 1970s. I would say that that perhaps is the beginning of that, but is the explosion is really in the 1990s. And usually the commemorative dates are important because uh, 1992, it was the 501st year of uh, the arrival of Columbus in the Americas. And this is when, uh, at the time, uh, UNESCO and launched uh, the project, the Slave Root Project, that I am a member of the scientific committee of that project uh, since 2017. But that project emerged in 1990, then the idea, the discussion in 1992, and was then uh, launched in 1994. Uh, was launched in uh, WIDA, that is the former slave trading port uh, in what is present-day Republic of Benin, then it's at that point that all this discussion starts uh, not in one single place, but in several different places, with the creation of exhibitions, sometimes smaller, uh, and then uh, the discussion emerges also in different museums, usually with an exhibition or a temporary exhibition. We are going to see this in Nantes, for example, uh, in France. Uh, and then there will be increasing pressure to tell and to debate this story and to create a permanent place in the existing museums uh, for this uh, the history of the slavery and the Atlantic slave trade. 
I think it's wonderful how much it has grown in the past 30 years and where we are now. And that brings me to the next question, which it's always been better looking at the wealth of the slaveholders um, and the wealth of those who were involved in the slave merchants and their representation. They've always been exist in existence. Can you talk about how that is represented in the museums? Yes, uh, in, in the museums, uh, the way uh, this is represented is in terms of uh, the refined lives of uh, this man, uh, then uh, the access that they had uh, to uh, sophisticate uh, items of material culture, then uh, in terms of uh, furniture, um, paintings, uh, portrait paintings, uh, then uh, items in silver in particular, and uh, porcelain. Some of these items, of course, in the museums, they appeared with a connection with the growing consumption of sugar, for example, and other beverages such as coffee and tea that uh, needed uh, then that uh, led to the increasing use uh, of sugar. And uh, these this, uh, this objects, of course, the museums that are bringing these uh, items of uh, the material culture of these elites uh, in Europe in particular, they are intended to show to some extent, yes, that uh, these items were for rich people uh, who trade uh, in enslaved people who were also slave owners. Uh, the wealth came from, from sugar, came from the plantations, uh, and came from the work of enslaved people. Then there is some connection to that, uh, to who provided the work. Uh, to make that sugar uh, exist and to uh, create the wealth that led this man to be able to purchase those those items and to consume uh, sugar and coffee and tea. But at the same time, um, as the focus are usually these objects, uh, there is a repetition in all these museums of those displays that uh, have then the sugar ball, the the cups, uh, the the spoons, and uh, also the uh, the the environments, uh, the the places where these elites they would uh, have tea, have coffee, have dinner, but they never uh, emphasize the fact that those who were manipulating those objects were enslaved people, that those who were preparing uh, then the meals and who were serving those um, uh, enslaved merchants or enslaved owners, they were enslaved people as well. Then there is an attempt to, to, to connect uh, the history of slavery and the Atlantic slave trade to this generation of wealth uh, then in Europe, I would say especially in France and in England, or even in places like here, uh, George Washington, and uh, the case of um, Thomas Jefferson as well. But uh, what is never brought to this part of the wealth component is the fact that those who were uh, providing the work even in the domestic environments of where these merchants and slave owners they lived, were also 
enslaved people. Then the, the, this, this element is usually uh, evacuated. And there is a tendency to focus too much on the objects. The objects become uh, very often, aesthetically speaking, they are beautiful objects. And uh, very often the museums, they don't go beyond that to explain the mechanisms through which uh, this wealth was uh, generated. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. And that's across the board, pretty much in most of the museums that you took a look at in the study. And it's not, there's this level of invisibility that these objects were manipulated pretty much by themselves and they stood outside of time for the most part. You don't really have a sense of the enslaved workers who were actually manipulating these wonderful items on a daily basis. Yes, and uh, also because if if you take the example of the the, the 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 element of wealth, of course, sometimes you have some displays in a museum exhibition. But the two museums, John Brown Museum uh, and uh, the Georgian House Museum, these were actual houses where these slave traders they 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 used to live. And the entire house is a display of wealth. The building itself, uh, uh, then uh, all the, the furniture that is displayed, then uh, all the all the, the artworks that are displayed, but the, the buildings themselves are all already then, uh, then um, a, a demonstration of how wealthy these individuals were at the time. And there is usually not a single mention to enslaved people in those houses. What we have sometimes is a separate room where there we have a story of slavery and enslaved people who lived in the house told in that specific room. Then even there, it's segregated. And But while we're walking uh, through these uh, houses, uh, then the, the furniture the the wood that was uh, through which the the furniture uh, was made or people who were serving uh, and doing performing all kind of work in the house nothing is um nothing is uh, emphasized and of course the wood was coming from the caribbean uh, then the, the the wealth was coming from the caribbean as well they were bringing enslaved africans with them back and forth from the Caribbean to live and to work in these houses. And these are elements that uh, are not addressed along the exhibition. Wow. I hope in the future that will change um, as museums are continuing to redefine what that experience looks like over time. But enslaved people aren't absent, as you noted there. They are actually there. And one of the things that has changed over the last um, 30 years is the suffering of enslaved people and the representations of that. And there are positives and there are negatives that go along with that. Can you talk a little bit about how enslaved people and their suffering are represented in the museum exhibits that you've taken a look at? 
Yes, uh, there is a lot of emphasis then, uh, of course, that all the experience about uh, a person who was enslaved and who was unfree was an experience that was based on violence. Uh, but uh, museums, the, the, the way to show that is usually through instruments of torture and images of uh, extreme violence. And in terms of objects, then the idea is uh, really to emphasize uh, this violence by showing, for example, uh, neck collars, iron collars, chains, shackles, and this kind of instruments of torture. Uh, then the, the, the violence is um, almost exclusively represented through these objects of uh, torture. This can be, of course, problematic because on the one hand, uh, you have to emphasize, of course, that uh, slavery was based on violence. On the other hand, uh, the showing these objects in ways that sometimes are not uh, well-developed or by only showing the objects, uh, there is a danger also to reenact uh, this violence. And, uh, of course, that uh, white people who visit these museums they do not see those objects uh, the same way that uh, then uh, African Americans and people of African descent whose ancestors were enslaved, uh, they do not see those objects uh, the same way. And this can, uh, I would say, uh, then reenact uh, that that violence if it, if it is not uh, presented in in, uh, in a careful way and in most places it's not uh, it's not the case were there any museums that you found in your study where it was done in a more careful way as you would say when you're looking at those representations I I would say that uh, one of the museums uh, the museum in my opinion that uh, that has done this in uh, then in a more appropriate way is the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, the exhibition is Slavery and Freedom, uh, because then violence and resistance, especially resistance, appears in all the, the stages, uh, in all sections of the museum. But uh, then in that museum, there is much more a more much more human dimension when and a more careful uh, approach when presenting um, than uh, objects uh, and uh, representing physical punishment. Then the, 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 there is not much emphasis on that. There is there are explanations regarding uh, violence and regarding punishment, but it's not presented in a way that. Um, almost uh, put those objects of torture uh, in the center, in the middle of the stage, as we have in some museums. In some museums, for example, uh, even the the light that is used to um, to lighten those objects uh, of torture, I would say, for example, in the museum in Bordeaux or also um, in the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool. Uh, sometimes even the ways that they are presented, they present the objects uh, of torture as 
if they were artworks uh, with a particular wow. kind of light, with a particular kind of light uh, that uh, the object itself becomes, of course, those objects were, if you uh, don't think about what they were about, any object can be uh, like, uh, how can I say, emphasized and uh, interpret in a way that evacuates the, the violence. And this is what is done in, in, some of, uh, in some of the places as well. I don't know if I was clear, but uh, we'll have time perhaps to, to come back to that. And you mentioned, you were very clear, I want to say, but you also mentioned resistance and this notion of resistance. And how is that most often showcased in museum exhibits that you found? And is it different, geographically speaking, U.S. versus England, France, and Brazil? Or are there similarities between how this is shown? There are, there are many similarities. I would say that uh, the emphasis is usually in terms of uh, violent resistance, resistance led by men, uh, by enslaved men, then through revolts, uh, then uh, and these big uh, acts uh, then uh, of uh, revolt, for example, the Asian Revolution is uh, often uh, emphasized not in France, uh, but uh, in other museums, for example, the International Slavery Museum, uh, rebellion is really the the element that is um, that is showcased as the main most important form of resistance, uh, which can be in terms of collective resistance. But these museums they fail to uh, to emphasize other forms of resistance. Resistance, for example, led by women. We have now. Uh, several historians, uh, black women historians, uh, writing about this and publishing about this, but this dimension is absent from the museum, where women do not appear as uh, actors who are uh, resisting against the slavery because they were not as visible in these big rebellions. And uh, daily forms of resistance are also, uh, most part of the time, absent uh, from this museum. I would say that the exhibition lies bound together uh, at the Mount Vernon George, uh, of George Washington estate. In that exhibition, there was emphasis um, on uh, these daily acts of resistance. But in most most part of the time, these are the big, uh, the, the, big uh, the big rebellions, the most important rebellions uh, in the history of the United States or the Caribbean and sometimes in the case of Brazil, that are uh, they are emphasized and not uh, all other forms of resistance. And there is one exception as well. The museum, National Museum of African American History and Culture, as I mentioned, uh, the exhibition is Slavery and Freedom. In that one, in that exhibition, resistance is everywhere. Then that is uh, perhaps the most accurate is certainly the most accurate representation of resistance, which means that it was embedded in all actions that enslaved people were uh, performing in their daily lives, and not only in special in special moments. That's good to know that we have the um, African American History Museum in D.C. because you mentioned, and I thought about it as you were stating it, this idea of women. And their role. How are actually enslaved women portrayed 
per se, or are they in many of the exhibits that you saw? Are they, or is there still kind of like this level of invisibility outside of DC? Is there this level of invisibility um, toward their experience? I would say that, um, yes, uh, then uh, enslaved women are mostly invisible. Even in the case of George Washington's estate, the exhibition there in Mount Vernon, uh, there is this important book written by Erica Dunbar, who taught uh, at Delaware uh, years ago. And Erica uh, wrote that book by Ona Judge, who was an enslaved woman owned by George Washington. Ona Judge in that exhibition, almost invisible. You have to, that. The exhibition is not very big, but you really had to look, 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 look for on a judge to find her in that exhibition. And what you found would be a silhouette, uh, because all enslaved people in that exhibition were represented by silhouettes. And her silhouette was uh, in a very unnoticeable place, not very, it was sort of dark, and you could visit the exhibition and does not see her. And even then in the cases when there is an important figure that could be totally highlighted in that exhibition, uh, it is not the case. Then uh, in most places, the stories of these women are uh, absent. Um, the, the National Museum of African American History and Culture perhaps is the exception again, because we have uh, then, uh, for example, Harriet Tubman, and then you have other uh, iconic enslaved women who appear in that exhibition. Uh, but they appeared uh, through subtle means, uh, through subtle forms. For example, the the shawl of uh, then uh, and then the Harriet Tubman. And then you you, you see them uh, objects that are uh, connected to them, uh, but uh, they are not part of the the big story. Even if we have, uh, in one section also, we have statues and we have uh, enslaved women in, in the same section that we have Thomas Jefferson and also Toussaint Louverture and, uh, and other um, uh, historical actors. But mostly they are absent. And I think that for students, for example, there would be an interesting work or even a topic of uh, for, for a dissertation or a master thesis that would look uh, at representation of enslaved women in these exhibitions and their absence uh, most part of the time. I know it's very interesting when you think about how much, and I, you know, it follows a historical trend because for so long, enslaved women were absent from the historical record per se. So, you know, hopefully uh, museums will also catch up to this and also yeah. include them as part of the historical narrative that they are creating and representing to the public. But it can be frustrating because you're like, you know that they're there and you know that they played such an integral role in everything that was going on, yet they have limited or non-existent um, representation for the most part. Now, you also, there's something else that you looked at in your book, this idea of permanent exhibitions versus those that were more transitory especially mm -hmm. um, permanent exhibitions as the one that's in D.C. Um, or the one um, at the Museum Day of Aquitaine in Bordeaux, France. Now, how are those per se collections and their representations? How do they 
different because they're much more, they are permitted exhibits. Um, yes. Um, how can I say? Um, then you, th th we have different cases. And of course, you have to take into account that uh, in Bordeaux, in the beginning, there were exhib exhibitions that were uh, temporary exhibitions, the same way that there was an exhibition that uh, was temporary, uh, that uh, traveled uh, around the country. It was first in the National Museum of American History and then gave birth to a section of the exhibition in the National Museum of uh, African American History. But one of the problems, I would say, w w with the permanent exhibitions is that these exhibitions must be based on collections that these museums already have. They are highly shaped by the existing collections of these museums. Now, here we have two different situations. In the case of the National Museum of African American History, we know that that museum didn't have a collection of when it was created. And then the, all everything that is in that museum was acquired to create the museum and uh, with donations and purchases and so on. Um, then uh, all the the objects that entered the museum entered the museum already to shape the exhibitions that would be created. Of course, that now the collections are incredibly big. But in the case of museums like uh, the Nant History Museum or the Museum in Aquitaine, uh, Muse uh, Aquitaine uh, Muse Museum of Aquitaine uh, in Bordeaux, uh, in that case, they used already the objects that they have. They purchased some uh, new items. They are still purchasing those items. But uh, most of what they have uh, in terms of permanent collections that uh, uh, have been used for the, the permanent exhibition are uh, artworks collected by um, uh, a doctor, a medical doctor who was uh, French and active uh, in the, the French uh, in the French Caribbean. And he donated his, uh, his collection to the museum. Uh, but of course, the collection uh, the collection, formed by an individual is, to some extent, uh, it's his perspective. The perspective then of a white French uh, doctor who collected artworks in the French Caribbean. This is completely different from what uh, then uh, an artist and an intellectual like, uh, like uh, Emmanuel Araujo did to create the Afro-Brazil Museum. Then this is a black uh, intellectual who collected black art and that those collections uh, are there in the museum but they represent uh, to a greater uh, to a, a great extent a point of view of the enslaved people and their descendants whereas in this other case of uh, the two french museums they mostly represent either historical collections that they have of uh, enslaved merchants in those uh, cities and families of enslaved merchants who kept the slave colors, who kept objects, uh, derogatory objects depicting uh, enslaved people or black people and donated that to the museum or the museum purchased from them. Um, and um, uh, then these objects represent uh, a, a different point of view. 
And this is a problem with the permanent collections because you see uh, the permanent exhibitions. They are usually based on the massive collections that these museums already had. And of course, creators, they have worked with those objects, uh, which are important as well. But of course, that it, this creates very different kinds of exhibitions. Now, one thing that I've been thinking about as we've been talking about all of these is how have museums addressed kind mm -hmm. of racism and that enduring legacy of racism that have faced people of African descent in places where slavery pre previously held? Is that something that they deal with or is it more something that they are disassociated from? Most part is um, is, um, is is absent. Then this this these exhibitions they have a, a tendency to to have a sort of a chronological uh, path. Then we start with the Atlantic slave trade. Sometimes then with the Middle Passage we go through the plantations. Sometimes we have resistance, and then we get to emancipation, and then uh, the problem uh, of racism. In some places, there is a uh, there is I would say uh, in a, there are attempts to address the problem. And the International uh, Slavery Museum, for example, in Liverpool, there is then this this attempt of dealing with the problem of uh, racism and show and connect with the present. Then is the way of connecting with the present is to talk about racism. And there is even a small section about reparations in that museum. But the museum is very crowded. It's a small museum. They are trying to transform and expand the museum. It's called a museum, but is as big as the the exhibition in Slavery and Freedom uh, in the National um, Museum of African American History and Culture. Now, in other places, for example, in France, um, then the non-history museum has nothing about the problem uh, the, the the contemporary issue, then the persistence of racism today, uh, it it's a very it, it's very historical. They are very loyal to the objects that they have that come from these families of slave traders, and the, the the connections are made throughout the exhibition, sometimes through artworks, but there is no final section uh, of the exhibition making these connections. Then in the, the in Bordeaux it is different because in Bordeaux they have this section at, at the end, uh, a section that to some extent is uh, borrowed from what we had uh, in the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, and it's a, a tricky uh, section because uh, it's the end of the exhibition and the idea is to say that yes that in Bordeaux. Uh, everybody black and white are together, that the population is mixed, and there is this attempt to show that, uh, of, uh, uh, to show as a certain uh, kind of uh, racial harmony that would exist uh, in France uh, regarding this uh, past uh, associated with slavery. And of course, we know that this, this is not the case. Then th at the end of that exhibition is problematic. Then Overall, most places, they do not deal with that problem. Of course, here in the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the, the exhibition is Labor and Freedom is just a section of the, the museum that has several floors. Then the problem of racism, 
appears several times and then all over the the entire museum, even beyond uh, that exhibition. But that is an exception. Right. And if you think about it, it's it's also geographically what that means um, as well, because you also think about, you know, when you're talking about France, and I was thinking about how that relates also to this amnesia in certain cases, and also as you're looking at England and what that means and the museums that are there, this idea of ongoing racism that may or may not be occurring in the society and how that wants to be addressed. And it's kind of this, it's something that we really don't want to address per se, um, or we don't really want to acknowledge. But, you know, at the National Museum of African American History here in D.C., you know, it is, as you say, everywhere. You can go out of slavery and freedom and you're moving on to what's happening in Reconstruction and you're going on with what's happening in the early civil rights movement. And that's early, the NADAR race relations. And then you're keep you're just going, as you say, throughout the entire museum. And it's just there for you to see, um, which is actually um, another wonderful thing about that museum that the exhibit is done very, very well because you get, you know, you get the full experience as of what has happened um, past mm-hmm. and present. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's true. And it's almost unfair with these other museums. Uh, but at the same time, it's also the fact that uh, this is a, a, this museum is unique because we do not have a museum of that kind uh, uh, as big as that one, even in Brazil, that is the Afro-Brazil Museum, but it's a, more of an art museum. Uh, we do not have a museum like this uh, in France. Then these two museums in France that we are talking about, one is a museum of the city, the other is a museum of the city as well, but it's a history museum of the city. It's not about uh, a museum of slavery, it's not uh, a museum of uh, uh, black people in France. Uh, then perhaps the only one that is a little bit similar is the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool. But again, this museum is not in London, it's in Liverpool, which was the largest slave trading port in, in, in Britain, uh, but it's a very small museum. Then it's not, you cannot, it would be unfair to compare that museum, despite the name International Slavery Museum, to what we, uh, to the, only to the exhibition Slavery and Freedom in Washington, D.C. It would be unfair to compare both because here what we have in the sea is much bigger. Right. And it is, it's, it's large. It takes you, you know, to go through the whole exhibit, it takes you a while to get through it because it was so masterfully done um, in the way in which it was created. So I want to ask you, what would you want readers to take away from the book? Um, I would like readers to uh, perhaps be better equipped when they will visit these museums to see uh, what is there and what is not. Uh, and uh, at the same time to uh, use those the, these topics that are developed uh, in the book like wealth, uh, resistance, uh, then achievement, and uh, this different uh, uh, and uh, also victimization and suffering that they use this, uh, this, this themes to think uh, about other 
places where slavery is also represented and either in heritage sites, even when they are watching television series, even when they are, um, I don't know, uh, watching a, a movie. Then I think that this book is a, is a short book, as you already said, uh, a book that uh, I think will prepare people to visit museums, will also be a good response to those who already visit museums but want to think a little bit more about what is there and what is not, and uh, also to encourage then um, more um, than curators and museum, uh, museum specialists and uh, also teachers uh, to address uh, to address you know, these topics, then this I would uh, think that are uh, what this is what I would like people to to take from from the book to take the book more as a provocation and also as a sort of uh, uh, beginning to understand uh, perhaps topics that have been uh, that have been addressed uh, not only in the museums that are examining the book but also elsewhere. Thank you so much, Professor Arujo. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Museums in Atlantic Slavery to learn more about how Atlantic slavery is represented in museums. And as Professor Arujo said, this is a book for academics. It's a book for the general public. And it's a book that will help you think more about the exhibits and, as you mentioned, how they connect for many of us to popular culture and what we see. Um, visually that has been represented as she wonderfully reminded me of Roots and also movies. Um, so please readers, I urge you to go out and pick up a copy of this book. Thank you. Thank you for having me.